When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. From The Independent, this is Double Take, a podcast in which we catch up with the writers of one of our favourite comment pieces. I'm your host, Kirsty Major. In March last year, we published a piece by GP and author of How to Dismantle the NHS in 10 Easy Steps, Yusuf El Gingi. His piece, terrifyingly according to the World Health Organization definition, the UK no longer has a NHS, has been one of our most widely shared pieces to date. If you didn't see it first time around, here is Youssef to read it out. Terrifyingly, according to the World Health Organization definition, the UK no longer has a NHS. The NHS has actually been abolished. Now, you may think that this is untrue. After all, You still go and see your GP, or may be admitted to hospital, and receive care free at the point of delivery. However, the Health and Social Care Act 2012 has abolished the NHS in legislative terms. It's achieved this through several mechanisms. It has axed the government's responsibility for the NHS. It has devolved responsibility to clinical commissioning groups, CCGs. The CCGs have reduced legal obligation to provide you with anything beyond emergency care. This may not be the case at present, but it means that there is no legal guarantee that they will continue to do so. It has opened up the NHS to unlimited privatisation. The government continues to deny that privatisation is taking place. Of course they do. A simple rebuffal comes from the World Health Organization definition of healthcare privatisation, which describes it as the increasing financing and or provision of healthcare by non-governmental actors. And the NHS Support Federation has shown that £30 billion of NHS contracts have been tendered since the Act came into effect. £16 billion have been awarded, with 34% going to the private sector. The introduction of market forces increases cost, reduces efficiency and increases iniquitous provision of healthcare. We know this from extensive data across many countries. This is because privatisation seeks to make profits, pays out dividends to shareholders and creates layers of bureaucracy administered by tiers of staff and managers through market mechanisms such as billing, tendering and contracting. The simple truth is that public healthcare systems are the most cost efficient. The private finance initiative, PFI, was touted as the largest hospital building programme in the history of the NHS. The outcome has been that PFI hospitals with an original cost of around £11.5 billion will actually cost up to £80 billion, with the difference going to private consortia. Across all infrastructure, PFI will end up costing an extra £250 billion. 
it is worth bearing this in mind the next time you hear about A&E in crisis or another beleaguered hospital. And when you hear a minister or policy wonk pontificating about the NHS crisis, remember that the solution is not more privatisation. We all stand to lose from the introduction of charging and universal private health insurance. The NHS reinstatement bill uh, has been written by Professor Alison Pollock and Peter Roderick. It has extensive cross-party support from many MPs, including Labour, Green, Liberal Democrat and SNP. This legislation would renationalise the NHS and restore it to its original remit. It would repeal the Health and Social Care Act 2012, protect the NHS from the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, and from ruinously expensive partnerships with the private sector, reverse the internal market, as is already the case in Scotland, and attempt to solve the toxic problem of PFI debt. That was Yusuf Elgingi reading his piece, Terrifyingly, according to the World Health Organization definition, the UK no longer has a NHS. If you want your say on the piece, do tweet us. You can find me at Kirsty underscore Major and you can find Youssef at at Elgingi. Up next, we chat about what the Tories have in store for the NHS a year on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Thank you, Yusef, for reading your piece. And it's really nice to meet you. We've been we've been working together now for almost a year. I've been yeah. editing and publishing your pieces. Yeah, yeah. So it's a real pleasure to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, likewise. It's um, it's long overdue, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. And also really sad that we're still talking about the same topic, which is the privatization of the NHS. Yeah, it's certainly not not going anywhere. Unfortunately, it's going the, in the wrong direction. So, as both a GP and a patient. What has your first-hand experience been of privatisation? Like, at what moment did you think, oh, this, this is happening? Yeah, it's a very good question because you certainly don't get taught anything about this at medical school or as a junior doctor. Um, so I, I first realised uh, or got an inkling of what was going on back in probably 2009-10, but it wasn't really till the Conservatives were in power, so more around 2011, 2012, that, that we began to see with the Health and Social Care Act as it was passing through Parliament what that would mean. Um, but I, I think for a lot of my colleagues, a lot of NHS staff like the public have been in the dark because this has been achieved in a very clever, insidious, gradual way, essentially. It's interesting that you say you became aware of it around 2011 because it, whilst it's very much a process which has sped up 
mm. under the Tories and under the Health and Social Care Act in 2012. It's a process which has been going on for a long time and did start, maybe not start, but did also happen under Blair's Labour. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's If you like, it's been a pro- cross-party um, process, although, of course, now with Jeremy Corbyn, uh, as the Labour leader, he's he's really the first leader of a major party to actually break with the consensus of privatising the NHS. But you're right, if you go back certainly to the 80s, um, it's been a 30-year project that started with the first outsourcing under Thatcher and then with the limited market in the 90s under the Conservatives before um, in, the, in the zeros it was expanded into an extensive market. And of course, yeah, in the last few years, so since 2010, that process has definitely accelerated what have you what have you what have you seen accelerating since 2011 since 2012 um i mean in terms of of personal experiences that's it's it's a bit harder to see privatization at the ground level sometimes um but you certainly notice the pressures of 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 cuts and lack of funding um in terms of, of workload and um, and so on. Um, and, and that's been very difficult, I think, for a lot of NHS stuff and for patient care as well. Um, I mean, in terms of, of my experiences as a, as a patient, I was, um, I had a serious diagnosis nearly two years ago, um, ironically, after I'd, I'd written my book, How to Dismantle the NHS in 10 Easy Steps, which was trying to communicate to the public what, what is happening. To the end, to our NHS, um, and, and then I found myself on the, the receiving end um, in a cruel twist of fate, really. Um, but it it underlined the message in in the book, which is that we all need the NHS um, at some point, um, and our loved ones do as well. And so um, I had several months of life saving treatment. Fortunately, on the hopefully on the the other side now. But um, what was already very personal has become even more personal now. With the NHS, the pers- personal is totally political. Mm. It makes me think a lot about the patient experience because I think so far NHS prioritisation has been really behind the scenes you know, with PFIs, like you say, um, and at the commissioning level. So you may not know that your local, I don't know, car- cardiology department is run by, say, Virgin. Um, or another private healthcare company. You don't know that yet because it still says NHS on the wall when you go in. The staff don't have private healthcare company uniforms on, they have NHS uniforms. So as a you know, as a user of the NHS, you think, oh, this is it's still ticking on as normal. But that's really started to change, even as someone who uses the NHS intermittently, you start to pay a little bit for your prescriptions, you start to hear in the news about migrants being charged to use the NHS. And I always feel like there's a slow creeping process of normalization for, for someone who's a patient. I don't know if you feel that as well as a patient and a GP. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a one-way direction of travel towards privatization and really paving the way for a two-tier system, which is already here. I guess we can go into that and the expansion of private health. Um, insurance. Um, I mean, prescription charging obviously been been around a while, but recently we've seen moves now, um, which we we wrote about um, together, didn't we? Which which was um, to to really, uh, I guess, re- reduce the number of items that would be 
available as NHS prescriptions. Um, but yeah, with, with migrant charging, I guess the concern there um, is that that's actually a way of introducing a charging mechanism. Um, the actual infrastructure that can just can then be expanded to other groups of patients. Um, but but yeah, it's it's all been very well concealed deliberately. So the NHS logo is is used to conceal a huge plethora now of private and market activity. Um, so for example, tens of billions of pounds of the NHS budget now go to corporations and banks, and the public is largely uh, unaware of that. And that is um, a huge problem. That's what happens when you when you've this is what's confusing for the public is that the NHS is no longer a, a publicly uh, provided and owned system. Large parts of it have been uh, taken over by by the private sector or are running as a market. And so, uh, the big part of the NHS crisis is basically due to that. And that's that's the message that a lot of people are not aware of. And it's, obviously, the whole debate has been very cleverly contained as well. And I think that's why your piece did so well, because yeah. it, it was such a succinct way of exposing the NHS for what it is now, which is yeah. not national. It's a, you know, yeah. the PHS. It's like a private healthcare system. You know, <laughs> it, it, yeah. um, and I think that's why it, it got so many shares, because it was so yeah. stark and it was a little bit of a wake up call yeah. for a lot of people. What we're seeing is um, the implementation of, of US model of healthcare, which is called accountable care or integrated health care and a lot of people are falling for it because that buzzword integrated care sounds really lovely who could who could possibly disagree with integrated care but what it really means is um, cutting costs by restricting access to hospitals and specialists so, yeah. so you, you think that's where it's going to the point where you get denied access to specialists well it's already I mean it's already happening that that we've seen a huge you know significant ramping up of rationing of care um, so all kinds of things that were rationing was always operated as a principle in the NHS but that's been been hugely ramped up in the last few years to the point where the royal colleges are, are coming out and saying this is this is basically immoral unethical what's going on so for example um, hip and knee replacements um, varicose veins uh, cataracts hearing aids all kinds of things that were previously available are increasingly being restricted in, in certain parts of the country and um, that's unsurprisingly unsurprising rather when you've had, uh, you will have had forty billion pounds in cuts over this decade, um, along with the privatisation. I think if you're trying to sum this up um, in a sentence, it's cuts and privatisation. And the point about privatisation is it basically siphons. It means that tens of billions of pounds get siphoned off and diverted as corporate profit. Um, so um, that's that's the reason we're seeing. Things like like more and more rationing, for example. It, it's almost like a crisis form of care where you don't access um, you don't access treatment for very minor things or explore those minor things that are going wrong with you at the GP and mm. goes to see specialists that then have more complex diagnoses yeah. given to you, which makes it even tougher for A and E's, which are also in crisis and. It, it's yep. this horrible, vicious circle. It's being sold as care in the community, but what that means really is is we already know £22 billion in cuts for the NHS by 2020, which means basically a, a major, massive programme of hospital closures, um, so particularly smaller hospitals. Um, and we've we've seen this in various documents, and it's, it's already um, 
here in, in terms of the vehicle is is the sustainability and transformation plans, um, which I've written about in another article. But um, again, those those are the kind of euphemisms and the, the glossary you need. The whole is uh, a whole lexicon. But sustainability means cuts. That's the twenty two billion pounds in cuts by twenty twenty for the NHS, and then transformation is is basically um, integrated U.S. integrated healthcare, and that means that they are trying to to centralise hospitals into these chains of super hospitals. And according to one government review called the Dalton Review, um, the aim is that those super hospitals could be run by NHS, large NHS trusts, or even private companies, it says. So that's what's happening in terms of of hospitals. That's the plan. And at the same time, hundreds of GP, when we talk about care in the community, actually, hundreds of GP surgeries are closing and hundreds more will close, um, according to the Royal College of GPs. So um, how on earth that fits in with, with care in the community clearly doesn't. And GPs, again, it's the smaller GP surgeries that are closing or facing closure, and they're being forced into networks. And the kind of reasoning behind the real reasoning, if you follow this in um, the mainstream, uh, sorry, in the health trades press rather than than most of the mainstream media, apart from the independent, um, which has covered this pretty well. Um, but but the reason for this restructuring is that um, after the Health and Social Care Act in the last parliament, a lot of the big companies such as Virgin and Serco and United Health and so on basically turned around and said, we're not making enough profit. Um, so the restructuring is about creating economies of scale, uh, according to the health trades press. So it's about creating networks, chains of hospitals and networks of GP surgeries, which is, if you're thinking about this from the point of view of, of an agenda being lobbied for by powerful interests, the private healthcare and insurance industry. It's it's about how you make something as lucrative and profitable as possible. Essentially, it's not lucrative or profitable to run a single-handed GP surgery or a small cottage or district general hospital. It's about a whole network of chains. So so that's really what's driving this. And and again, in the, in the health trades press or even the Financial Times, they're pretty frank and explicit about this. Um, the real driving force is that the US health healthcare market is saturated. And that's why uh, particularly the American healthcare and insurance companies are expanding into into the NHS in Europe and Asia. But yeah, there's there's a nice <laughs> nice uh, uplifting <laughs> message for your for your t- afternoon tea. What do you make of Jeremy Hunt's aversion to answering questions about the NHS <laughs> when being interviewed for the general election and his mm. insistence on saying that it's all going to be fine if we just negotiate Brexit? Mm. Is that is there any truth in that or? Uh, no, <laughs> he's he's yeah he's um, very slippery, isn't he? He's very good at evading things and going AWOL at critical moments, as we saw in the junior doctor strikes. Um, yeah, no, Jer- I mean Jeremy Hunt um, is is really just a figurehead. That's the the problem I have with focusing too much on on him. Um, of course, he's important as health secretary, but. He um, is is really just just one of a whole succession of health secretaries and ministers who've pushed this forward. That's not to get him off the hook, um, but what we are dealing with is something much bigger, which is which is really a, a program of privatisation being pushed for by the healthcare and insurance lobby and by all the corporations and banks that are and will benefit from from dismantling the NHS. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, the evidence is, is very clear. And all these people are on the record, including Jeremy Hunt. So he's he co-authored a book with fellow 
conservatives back in the in the zeros where they um, talked about dismantling <laughs> the uh, NHS. So um, we know where he stands, and um, we know, for example, that Nick Seddon, who was David Cameron's um, main health advisor, he wrote a series of articles in the Telegraph. If anyone wants to to have a read about his vision for the NHS, this was before he became health advisor, but he he'd previously been working for Circle, a private health care company that's obviously benefiting from all of this. Um, and he'd worked for Reform, which is a pro-privatization NHS think tank. And um, he, he wrote in a series of articles that the NHS um, should be merged with, with, with insurance companies and that those who can uh, contribute should do towards their health co- health costs. So that was the man who had David Cameron's um, ear. Um, he's he's no longer in Downing Street, but um, there's a whole series of very influential, powerful key players who, if you care to look, are on the record as, as being very explicit about privatising the NHS and, and expanding private health insurance. It's quite like a seven-headed hydra. You know? <laughs> get rid of one and it just pops up again it's an ideology you can't kill ideas and it's Mm. an idea which is so firmly impregnated at a policy level when when we discuss the nhs which brings me on to labor and corbyn do you think that would be a break from the trend or do you think despite their their rhetoric they'd be just as susceptible to these ideas um yeah fantastic question um i mean in terms of the first part yeah absolutely Right, it's um, neoliberalism, isn't it? It's, a, it's, it's an, an ideology and orthodoxy that believes that deregulated free markets should run everything. So the idea that the NHS would somehow be exempt is, is of course, not true. So um, the problem is that ideology has been disastrous, as we've seen since the financial crash for not just the NHS, but public services and the economy. So um, we need, I think, dramatic, radical, progressive change in terms of tackling that ideology. But in terms of Cor- Corbyn's policies on the NHS, um, both him and, and John McDonnell um, were two of the earliest signatories to the NHS reinstatement bill, um, which would, would restore the NHS, well, would aim, it would be a good start, it would aim to restore the NHS as a public healthcare system rather than a market one. Um, but of course, that's not going to be something easy to just reverse. He's going to need a lot of help. This is a bill which you referred to in your piece. So it was March of last year we published this piece. Mm. And I think at the time you were looking to have the first reading of the bill. Was that right? Yeah, I think it it might have been the first or the second. And where is it at now? Um, Well, well, the the problem is that the government, obviously the Conservative government isn't interested in in this bill. They're moving in the opposite direction of, of... privatization as we've said um so you would need a new government um that is in favor of this policy um so that's the the first step but the bill the bill is still very much there um but until that happens um it's got a lot of cross-party support um apart from the conservatives um but until until you get a a favorable government then um then that project of of public NHS is 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 going to be um, very much in danger so um, I mean I think I think what we need is a positive 21st century vision is is a truly public NHS which means um, not just publicly uh, provided and owned but 
but also I think having um, NHS staff and patients and communities on the boards of of hospitals and health services, for example. I think that's what a truly 21st century vision would be, um, but we're a long way from that. There's, there's a really beautiful Anoran Bevan quote, no. which is, I mean, I'm going to misquote it, but <laughs> essentially to paraphrase, as long as there's people in, like, in the UK who benefit from the NHS, there's people who will fight for it. Yeah. Because it is a national treasure. It's one of the few things which I think a lot of people feel inherently uh, connected to across party lines and across generations and something that everyone's really proud of and I don't think it's something that anyone wants to lose anytime mm. soon. No, absolutely. Um, yep, yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the with Anya and Bevan as long as there are, you know, folk left with the faith to fight for it then then that's how long it will survive and we you know I never when I wrote my book or, or some of the earlier pieces I never anticipated that we'd see 50,000 junior doctors on the on the streets um, for a year or so um, so that was incredible um, but I, I think it's of course sadly ended with a whimper and we have to, to learn that lesson it has to be basically a starting point and I think for me the lesson to be blunt is that I'm not sure that the doctors will save the NHS. It has to be the public. That's the lesson I've learned. Um, and that goes back, sadly, to the history of the NHS at the start, um, is that uh, the British Medical Association were not in favour of it. So really? Bevan, yeah, Bevan famously said that he had to stuff the consultants' mouths with gold to buy them off. So, um, yeah, it has to be the public, I think. Um, and, you know, there's lots of encouraging signs there because with these sustainability and transformation plans when it's your local hospital that's going to close that's completely different to dealing with some abstract piece of legislation um so th that really gets hundreds and thousands of people out on the streets so this although we're in the end game as it were the penultimate phase that's going to be the hardest step um i think we saw that with the, the British Red Cross declaring a humanitarian crisis at the start of this year. You you can't really keep the lid on it for for that much longer. So um, yeah, I think there's there's plenty of of hope. Well, thank you. We'll include some links um, on the website, and so yeah, we'll give people an opportunity to get involved. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. If you like the show, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Acast or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Double Take is produced by Helen Hodnot. Holly Baxter is the editor of Independent Voices. I'm Kirsty Major. See you next week. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.